This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. God, our Father, we lift you up this morning and we exalt your name. We boldly boldly proclaim that we are grateful for the gospel of your son, Jesus. And we long for all to know his redemptive love. This morning, Spirit, we find our home and rest in you. Thank you for being at home in and with us. We pray this morning that each of us as individuals and each of us as and in this congregation, that our hearts would be moved by your word, that our minds would be renewed by it, and that our souls would be awakened by it, and our strength bolstered by it. This morning we pray that our sin may be revealed within us so that we would crush its ugly head. This morning too we pray for the young in our midst, our little ones, our youth, and our college students. For those heading back off, we ask your blessings upon them. Remind them, God, that an education is a beautiful gift and that ultimately it's to be used in your service. We pray for Point Loma and are grateful for all it's done. And we pray too, Lord, for the students and schools here in our own communities, from HPU to Leeward to UH to Pacrim. We pray that your name would be known in each. Be with us now as we feast on the word and then at your table. We offer this time up to you that it may be a pleasing aroma. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, what a great morning so far. You can be seated. It's good to see all of you. For those of you uh, visiting with us, uh, welcome. If, you haven't, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to, to say hello so you can uh, come see me before you leave. I'd appreciate that. I'm going to bring this guy over here uh, for a moment, and we'll get to this eventually. I know I'm pretty short, so it isn't just so I can get some height. It has a, a point, and we'll get to that in just a bit. But um, I was wondering, have you all heard the one about the man who let his brother take care of his cat? No? Some of you know? Everybody's shaking. Well, this guy, um, he's just getting back from a long business trip out of the country, and he left his cat with his brother. And as soon as he's back at the airport, he calls his brother and he asks about the cat. The cat's dead, says the brother. And this guy, he's, he's on the other end of the just devastated. Hey, that cat meant a lot to me. Don't you know any better than, than to break bad news like that? Jeez. You ought to say, well, you know, the cat got on the roof and the fire department came and they put up the ladder, but the cat was afraid to let go. It was cold outside and, and finally when they were able to get up there, the cat had passed away from exposure to the elements. You know, you, you break it gently. Man, I'm sorry, the brother says. I'll do a better job next time, I promise. Okay, okay. Anyway, what's really important is family. How have you been all this time? How's mom? And the brother says, 
Well, Mom got out on the roof. <laughs> took some of you a minute to get it. Uh, so uh, how, we, how we say things is important, right? And, and as you know, in the series, Bearings, we're considering the Nazarene articles of faith. And they give us direction on our foundational beliefs. These articles of faith, however, unlike the Bible, they're not inspired, right? And, and actually, every so often, every several years, they might change or get updated. The language of them might get updated um, in the interest of clarification or clarity. And it's a good thing. Uh, I wouldn't... Um, I actually wouldn't mind submitting a few topics for discussion on the articles for consideration to maybe update some of the wording as they stand right now. Um, but we, we've been going through the articles. We got to start a couple weeks ago. We did actually Article 1 two weeks in a row, and today we're on to Article 2. So that's what's in view. In this article, it focuses on Jesus. And here's what it says. It says, We believe in Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, that He was eternally one with the Father, that He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and manhood, are thus united in one person, very God and very man, the God-man. We believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that He truly arose from the dead and took again His body, together with all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature, wherewith he ascended into heaven and is there engaged in intercession for us. As with all these articles of faith, this one is very wordy, right? It's very verbose. Um, and so in the interest of clarity, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take time each week to sort of re-articulate these to clarify a little bit. So here's what I think is a bit more articulate in terms of rendering Article 2. It's a little bit longer, but that's because in it I, I want to unpack some of those $20 theological words that they use. Here it is. We believe that Jesus, the Anointed One, died for our sins. We believe that this is true. That He was raised from the dead by God the Father and God the Spirit. We believe that in His resurrection, He was raised in the same body He had prior to death. And we believe that He alone was the perfect human. And in His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, promised to overcome and perfect our sinful human nature. And we believe that at this moment, Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father and not only grants us direct access to God the Father, but brings us directly to God the Father. All right, good stuff, yeah? Little, little easier to understand, I think. But I want us to keep this in mind as we move forward this morning uh, talking about Jesus, right? And as we press on, I have a question, right? How many of you have heard the name Philip Zimbardo? Anybody? You have. All right, we have one in the audience. I wasn't expecting that, so good on you. Philip Zimbardo, it's not a common name, right? Um, but maybe you've heard of what Zimbardo did, probably a number of you have, on August 14th through 20th in 1971. He conducted a social experiment co-sponsored by the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Marine Corps to investigate the causes of difficulties that often arose between prison guards and prisoners. 
Oh, some of you, all right. Zimbardo, he was a professor of psychology. And he, he appointed himself in this activity the warden or the superintendent of a mock prison that he created. And then he had these volunteers function as, as guards or prisoners, right? So 24 applicants were enrolled and they were paid 15 bucks a day to do this. And here's a short description of how things started to play out. It says, after a relatively uneventful first day, on the second day, the prisoners in cell one blockaded their cell door with their beds and took off their stocking caps, refusing to come out or to follow the guards' instructions. Guards from other shifts volunteered to work extra hours to assist in subduing the revolt and subsequently attacked the prisoners with fire extinguishers without being supervised by the research staff. After only 35 hours, one prisoner began to act crazy, as the article says, as Zimbardo described. Number 8612 began to act crazy, scream, curse, go into a large rage that seemed out of control. And it took quite a while before we became convinced that he was really suffering that we had to release him. Guards forced the prisoners to repeat their assigned numbers to reinforce the idea that this was their new identity. So sometime later then, the Stanford uh, newspaper, it said this about the whole thing. Zimbardo's primary reason for conducting the experiment was to focus on the power roles, the rules, the symbols, group identity, and situational validation of behavior that generally would repulse ordinary individuals. Now, our world, our, our society, is full of symbols, right? And these symbols, they often work in a way to remind us of rank, to remind us of power, to remind us of status. These symbols are everywhere, right? And what they do is the, these symbols, when you go into a place and there are symbols around, they sort of give you your bearings. They tell you who's in charge and who's not, and they tell you where you fit in to the system, right? So on this campus, we can spot the Radford logo, Right? And for those who are students here, it reminds them that when they're here, they're part of this community. You're a Radford Ram. That's, that's Rams, right? You're a Radford Ram. And even that symbol, right? The symbol of a Ram. It's a potent symbol. A Ram. Rams signify virility or masculinity, historically anyway. They signify power. Right? So that logo, when students and adults wear it on their clothing, people from Radford, uh, it lets others in the community know that that's how they kind of want to be represented. So you go to Radford, you've connected to Radford, then you're a person of virility and power. You're a ram, right? And when we talk about power, we're often talking about rank too, or a hierarchy. Again, if you, you think about this place, this very place we're in, in terms of rank and the way that it's set up, you're reminded of that as soon as you get here, right? Uh, there's an office right there, right at the, at the beginning. It reminds you who's in charge, right? And the rank sort of goes students, staff, faculty, admin, principal, superintendent, and so on. And so you can keep going up the hierarchy. In a typical workplace, you have something similar. You have an employee, maybe a department manager, a store manager, maybe a regional manager, or for those of you who watch the office assistant, to the regional manager, um, and so on, right? So in our world, we have 
hierarchy and rank all around us, right? It's everywhere. And so we, we have a, like an innate desire to do this, to set up these kinds of systems, to make our rank in the system and our status known. It's been so woven into the fabric of who we all are, are right, that it's just become a part of us. We just expect it wherever we go. Those of you in the military, you probably know it better than anybody, right? And, and so this desire for rank and status, it's just been woven into nearly all human cultures. Go just about anywhere in the world and you're going to find it somehow. Here in the U.S. in particular, we're told from a young age, and we tell our kids from a young age, that they can be great. They can be anything they want to be. They can do whatever they want to do. As long as they work hard, they can become this or they can become that. They can become president. And that's always like the, the top one we tell them, right? And we're, we're pushed, and we push our kids to make something of themselves. We're pushed to move up the ladder, the vocational food chain, right? And all of it starts when we're children. That's where it starts. Adults are always asking little kids what they want to be when they grow up. And so kids grow up, right, uh, using their climb up through the ranks or not as a sort of barometer of how good they are or how valuable they are. And as with all things, then, we should ask how the scriptures speak to this reality of ours. Might it have something to say? Does it affirm this kind of thinking? Does it call it into question? Maybe does it rebuke it? Now, on this subject in particular, I think there's an especially relevant set of verses. And when the Apostle Paul shared or wrote these verses, which are actually an ancient Christian hymn, a Christian song, perhaps the earliest Christian hymn in all of history, all of Christianity, he spoke about this very matter. I'm speaking uh, specifically of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, and it says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Jesus, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Now, that word is actually slave. By taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found... In appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as I mentioned minutes ago, this may well be the earliest Christian hymn that we have. There's some really good stuff here, some really good stuff. And if we understand the cultural nuances of what's being said, it helps us get a greater grasp on what's going on, right? As with nearly every verse in the Bible, there's much more going on here than initially meets the eye. So you see these notions of rank and status just as they are in America today, they were of great importance in the ancient world. It was a competitive world. 
And if you're interested, scholars use the word agonistic, right, to describe this kind of thing, agonistic. And agonistic is just a fancy word for very competitive. So it's an agonistic culture. I think our culture is an agonistic uh, culture. Some of your families are agonistic families, right, very competitive families. And so the world of the New Testament, it was very, very socially competitive. It was agonistic. And this was especially true in the domain of politics. Sound familiar? Right? If, for instance, you wanted to be a member of a senate, there was a formal process that you had to go through that allowed you to climb through the ranks. Right? The ancients, they had a name for this process. Let's see. Here we go. They had a name for this process. It was called the cursus honorum. The cursus honorum. And all this means is the course of honor. I think there's a note about it in your bulletin there, but it was the course that one took to rise through the social and political ranks of the day. It was a way of uh, doing upward mobility, right? a way to climb the social ladder. And this morning I have this ladder here, right, to sort of, here we go, to sort of help symbolize it, right? That's kind of a, hard, a little bit of a hard thing to follow. So you can imagine, right, if you just... If you look at the bottom there, and just imagine this ladder, you have military tribune, you're starting at the bottom. Then you have a quaestor, and a pro-quaestor, an idel, a praetor, and once you get all the way to the top, you have a censor, right? So this cursus honorum was the historical and traditional path that you would follow. And so we have two sides of the ladder, actually, and, and depending on how wealthy your family was or not, you got to start on one side of the ladder or the other, right? If you were born into a rich family, I don't think I have another, yeah, if you're born into a rich family, you actually get a head start. So you can notice on this side that there's fewer rungs, right? So if you're rich, you're going to start on the side with fewer rungs, so it's going to take you fewer steps to get up the ladder. Whereas if you're just a normal person, right, your, your family has sort of no status, you're going to start on the side that takes longer and has more steps. Right? So if you're a patrician, you, you get an advance. You get a head start. If you're a plebeian or a plebe, you've you got to go through all of the steps. No shortcuts. And so we have the social ladder, and you, you want to climb it. Right? You start on either side. You work your way up, and you start at the very bottom in order to get to the top. You could start at the very bottom at age 20. Right? And then you had to... Your, your first position, you had to hold it for at least 10 years. And then the positions after that, you could uh, move up one year. And again, if you had a head start, you can skip over some of those things, right? So you rise up through the ranks. And this image, even though it's filled with a lot of detail, it's, it's pretty helpful for getting an idea of the process. You start at the bottom as tribune and move your way up to censor. This was a way to attain social status, social standing, to attain public honor, to attain prestige, to attain rank. And the whole thing, right, it's about upward mobility. It's about moving up the ladder right here. And then we have Paul and what he says. And what he says, I think that it should cause us to begin interrogating our intentions and our priorities. Because this hymn that we just read in Philippians, it's actually a contrast to the cursus 
Hanorum. When Jesus comes, he changes things. He takes, Silas, you can come up here and help me. Jesus takes the ladder and flips it upside down like that. Right? And it's pretty amazing. So, yeah, just stand there and hold that for me for a minute. And I, I wanted to bring the ladder in here to help you get a visual, right? I'm trying to give you visuals each week. We did of the Trinity and of God the Father. And this is kind of what I want you to think of when you think of Jesus, right? He flips the ladder. He starts here and he comes down. He flips the entire social order. And there's a word for this. It's cursus pudorum, right? The way of a slave, essentially. He moves down the social ladder. He flips it. Things start, and get, start getting flipped upside down because Jesus isn't engaged in upward mobility. He's engaged in downward mobility. Right? And it's in that downward mobility as God becomes a slave and then He's killed and raised that He finds His exaltation, His glory, and His honor. He starts at the highest place, God, and moves to the lowest, slave. Right? He takes on the form of a slave, as Paul says. And, he be and it's God becoming human. He's coming down. He gets under our skin. Not in a bad way, like literally gets under human skin. God and becomes a human. And so Paul, he had a word to describe this process of getting under human skin. Right? God getting under human skin specifically. It's the word kenosis. And it's, it's our word of the day, right? To help you, you, you think a little more differently, right? This word kenosis. And it means self-emptying. Jesus, in this hymn, is God the self-emptying Son. And you can see it as God comes down. He's throwing off these things. He's emptying Himself. Jesus comes here and upends everything. Right? No more chasing after upward mobility. Turn it upside down. No more striving for that. Turn it upside down. No more striving after personal honor. Turn it upside down. God Himself came down the ladder and gave us an example Turn it upside down. No more necessarily thinking, I want my kids to move up the ladder. Turn it upside down. I want them to be like Jesus. This hymn and Jesus' life, they speak to that. Now hear me on this. Jesus came down and emptied himself. God came down and emptied him. What kind of person does that? What kind of God does that? Jesus let go of his divine prerogatives. He didn't cease being God, right? He didn't cease being God. What this means is that, in essence, he put the omnis on hold, right? He put the omnis on hold. That's another way you can, you can think about Jesus. Put the omnis on hold, right? He couldn't be, as a physical human, everywhere at once. He couldn't just use all that power as he wanted to, right? He had to let go of the knowing of everything 
right? His, his nature as God and his character as God, that didn't change. He was still 100% God. But he had these divine prerogatives that he emptied himself of, right? To become 100% human as well. So Jesus is a picture of God saying, here, this is how to live. Not climbing up the ladders, but climbing down them. Jesus upends the power structures and the hierarchies of his day. And he does it without force. He does it without violence. He does it in a peaceful way, lowering and emptying himself. And in doing this, he redefines honor. He redefines what it means to be honorable, right? Because it is in becoming less, that's where the honor resides. Serving another person, that's where the honor resides. Not being up top and powerful. And I dare say that our culture, it isn't all that different than the ancient world. We have these social ladders. One only need to look at Amazon.com to see all the book titles with that idea in them. Climbing the corporate ladder, climbing the money tree, climbing the social ladder in stilettos. What it really takes to get to the top and so on. But Jesus' way, as the hymn reaffirms, moves in the opposite direction from our human nature. It's countercultural. Right? Honor belongs to those who sacrifice for others for the good of the community. So I want you to hear this, friends. Becoming a disciple of Jesus, becoming a Christian, what it's supposed to look like in daily life is a bunch of many reenactments of that coming down. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's a daily bunch of many reenactments of that. Shedding your prerogatives, shedding your status, shedding your rank to serve someone else in the name of Jesus. It isn't a bottom-up kind of movement, but a from wherever you are at the moment, down kind of movement. You die to live. You die to live. Right? And it starts with baptism. Right? Think, think about that. Your initiation into Christ's body, Christ's church, it begins when you're going down. It begins when you're being buried with Christ. You are literally going down, right? And then you are raised to new life. And sanctification, friends, all it is is a daily routine of doing that over and over. Dying to self, living to Christ. Dying to self, living to Christ. Dying to self, living to Christ. Shedding my honor, shedding my prerogatives, shedding my status, dying to self, living to Christ. Daily reenacting that. Or take the Lord's Supper. And I should say this, you know, discipleship, it's not mastering life, and it's not mastering the Christian life, but it's being mastered by the Master. That's what discipleship is. And if you think about the Lord's Supper, communion, it's this symbolic act of emptying yourself. When you partake, you're, you're not merely confessing your dependence upon Jesus, you are doing that, but you are in front of and along with everyone else partaking and engaging in an act of downward movement, downward mobility, 
It's another instance of us reenacting our dying with Christ and living again. We are in communion, taking the form of a slave, imitating Jesus and doing that. Because what we're doing is we're, we're taking Jesus' blood upon ourselves and into ourselves, and we're marking ourselves with that blood as one of His. We're saying together with Him, all right, I'm a slave of Christ. And I'm with this guy who's going down the social ladder. And so His blood in, in communion... Right? We're thinking His blood covers us and His blood marks us. And that's what happens when we take communion. And as we prepare to do that in just a moment, I want to give you something to think about as I, I come to a close here. Back in 2013, there was a mall shooting in Kenya. And a number of people died in this horrific event. And sorry I'm telling this story on the day the kids are in here, but um, it's a powerful story. It's, ever since I've heard it, it's just stuck with me. There's this woman named Sneha Kotari. And when this all went down, she was in the mall and she had to hide. She was trying to hide, find a place to hide. And sadly, there was this young person next to her, a teen, and got shot, right? He stopped breathing, he died. But Sneha was hiding close to him, saw, saw him laying there. And saw his phone by him. And she grabbed it because she wanted to try to silence the phone so the attackers wouldn't come back or whatever. And if she did, that's when she, she like in, encountered all his blood flowing out, right? And she said in that moment to protect herself that she just started taking the blood that was gushing from him and smearing it all over herself, her hair, her face, her arms, her body, covering herself in this boy's blood. And she said this, I would love to know who he was and everything because his blood probably protected me from getting injured or attacked. And when you take communion today, you are in a sense once more taking Jesus' blood and covering yourself in it. You're, you're taking on his death in order to live. And in this, you're not moving up any ladder at all. You're emptying yourself. You're moving downward, confessing that you are a servant, a slave of Jesus, God, the self-emptying Son. So this morning, as we prepare for communion, I, I invite you to, to come forward, to be covered again in the blood of Jesus. And as you do that, to surrender yourself to Him. To surrender yourself in order to live. This morning, we're going to partake of the elements by a process known as intinction. And this means that you're just going to come forward and you're going to rip off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, and partake. So, and so that we can keep this moving slowly, we're going to have ushers coming down the center aisle um, and they'll dismiss your row. So you can come down the middle and then just go outside of the row to, back to your row, back to your seat. And if you're sick or uh, you feel you need to wash your hands, the usher will have some uh, sanitizer there. You can use that if you'd like. But I want to remind us as we go into this, this is not the bridge's table, right? This is not the bridge's meal. 
This is the Lord's table. And so all who have been baptized are invited to partake. If you haven't been baptized, but are feeling led to partake, you are invited. Because we believe that this table is a means of God's grace, or an experience of God's grace. If you don't wish to partake this morning, you can stay seated, we're fine with that. Um, or I invite you to come forward, and if, if, if you want to, you can place your arms and a cross over your chest, and we'll say a, a prayer for you. Okay? Um, so, for those unable to make it up front to partake, if there are any of you, we'll, we'll bring them to you. So, let's, let's stand together as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And now, as people marked by God's blood, people covered in the blood of the one who emptied himself, may you bear this mark always. May you strive toward the things of God. Strive not toward the world's way, but toward the way of the God-man Jesus. And as you do, may the world encounter Jesus' transforming, upending, overturning, life-altering, community-changing way of life in you. Go in peace now and empty yourselves, knowing that when you do, not only will someone else's life be filled up, but that the Spirit will, as promised, fill you too. Amen. Go in peace.